listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Have you ever belly flopped? Oh yeah, no shame in that. You can raise your hand, yeah. Most of us have belly flopped at some point, right? Sometimes it's on accident. Sometimes it's like my five-year-old son who belly flops all the time on purpose, which is a little concerning, right? But belly flopping, when you belly flop, it can hurt, right? I've got a picture on this, I'm gonna put up on the screen for you. I remember the first time, maybe I'd done it before, but the first time I have a memory of belly flopping was at Strickland's Landing at a place called Kingsley Lake in Florida. It's an old picture I found on the interwebs of it. And that's not me jumping, but uh, that's an old picture. And that is the high dive that I'm going to refer to. So this is an awesome place. My dad was a youth pastor growing up. And I remember he took the youth group there all the time. And I frequently got to go with him. I was about seven or eight years old this particular time. By the way, Kingsley Lake, it's a proven fact, is has lots of alligators and water moccasins. Why we went there, I have no idea, right? This is why you can Google Florida man and all kinds of things pop up because we're, we lack some sense, okay? But um, man, the high dive was kind of the cool kid spot. So as a seven-year-old going with my dad in the youth group, man, if I ever got to go up on the high dive and hang out with the high schoolers, I felt like I had arrived, right? And it was, it was kind of this mountaintop experience because you're, you're up on the top there, you're overlooking the lake, it's beautiful, you're hanging out with your friends. It was always a good time. Well, this particular year, particular time, I was finally going to work up the courage, or had worked up the courage, to jump off of the high dive. And I was so cool that I was going to do it with my mom, okay? Because some cool kids do, they jump off the high dive with their mom. I couldn't do it by myself. I thought if I can hold my mom's hand, it'll all be okay. Well, my mom is not a large person, but at seven years old, she was a little bit bigger than me. So as we jumped off and we're holding hands, you know what happened, right? She starts falling faster, and as she does, pulls me down, boom, hit the water, complete belly flop. And so I went from this mountaintop up there feeling cool with the high school students to as I came up out of the water, I was already crying, right? The whole front part of my body was slap red. And these high schoolers were kind enough to jump down in there. And of course, they didn't belly flop. But they jumped down in there, were being empathetic and caring for me. Man, when you, when you belly flop, it stuns you, right? Now, if it's just like not far jump, and eh, maybe not. But if you're on a, a high dive or even a, a tall diving board, it can stun you. Uh, it can even look, be a little bit disorienting, right? And it can certainly be embarrassing. I tell you that because... I share that story because we, more than we would like to admit, sometimes belly flop spiritually, right? So we have, the, we have these great mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Maybe it was a camp. Maybe it's a retreat. Maybe it's just a really fruitful time as you're spending time in God's word and reading scripture and praying. Maybe you feel like as you come to church, God is, is meeting you in some really fresh ways. But then we can belly flop. What do I mean by spiritually belly flop? It's when you are stunned by how suddenly you've lost pleasure and purpose in Jesus. So it kind of stuns you, and it happened fast. 
you're lacking in finding your joy in Jesus and in living out your purpose in Christ. But we do that more than we would like to admit. You know, and often when we spiritually belly flop, we do one of two things. We get really busy, like act like it never happened. Just everything's fine. Everything's fine. Or we get pathetic. I'm the worst person ever. I'm such a bad Christian. And really, I would say neither of those are helpful. We need to do the third. That is get perspective. So that there's a mindset when you, when you find yourself feeling distant from the Lord and man, what happened? There's some mindsets that you need to have. They need to remember. And lucky for us, fortunate for us, the Bible is full of people who belly flop spiritually. One of them is in a first Kings chapter 18. One of my favorite stories. You're probably, if you've read the Bible much or been to church much, you're probably a little bit familiar with this story at least. But 1 Kings 18 through 19 is where we're going to be. And it's, it is, it is a, an epic mountaintop story, true story of Elijah. And then we're going to see him somewhat belly flop. But the cool thing is it gives us perspective on, on things that we can do, things we need to do. Remember when that happens to us. So 1 Kings 18 is where we're going to start. And a few things you need to know about this story before we kind of parachute down in here. Uh, Let's let's know a few things about it. So first of all, a few characters, Elijah. While he wasn't perfect, man, this was a godly man who was passionate about the things of the Lord, who walked with God, who walked in purity. This was an incredible man of God who was a prophet at the time. Second person you need to know uh, is Obadiah. So Obadiah he worked for the government. He worked for the king at that time, and he was a godly man. He feared the Lord. He even at one time, he hid 100 of the Lord's prophets who uh, the government was trying to kill. He hid them away to protect them because he was a godly man who feared the Lord. Another person you need to know of, speaking of the government, was the king at that time. The king's name was Ahab, and this was a bad dude. If you look back to chapter 16, you can even flip over there real quick if you want. Chapter 16, verse 30, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. So this is, he's like setting records in evil. This is not something you want recorded in the Bible about you, right? Like, what was, what was his story? Well, he was the most evil king Israel had ever seen at that time. This is an evil man. Another character you need to know that we're going to see here is Ahab's wife, Jezebel. And if you thought Ahab was bad, Jezebel was even worse. Like, gents, if you ever bring home a girl and your mom and dad call her a Jezebel, don't ask questions, just break up, okay? Like, it's not worth it. She was an evil woman who would round up the Lord's prophets and have them slaughtered just because she hated God. An evil, conniving, manipulative woman who was really kind of pushing Ahab to do more evil because she worshiped false gods. So that brings us to kind of the setting of the story we're going to be in. Israel at this time was in, excuse me, they were in a famine. Why were they in a famine? Because they were in a drought. Why were they in a drought? They were in a drought because they had committed idolatry. God's people were supposed to worship the one true living God, to worship the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. But instead, they were worshiping Baal and Asherah. They were worshiping false gods, idols made by human hands. And if you remember, if you're familiar with the first five books of the Bible, yes, they're worth reading. In the first five books of the Bible, God told them, in Deuteronomy, God tells them, hey, if you don't worship me, if you don't follow me, there will be consequences. 
And so in 1 Kings 18, they're living that out. They're in a drought, they're in a famine because they had been worshiping these false gods. So you know a little of the setting. Let's dive in. Chapter 18, verse 16. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him that Elijah was coming. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? That's always a great way to be greeted, right? <laughs> like, is that you, the one ruining everything in my life? That's what he says to Elijah. But listen to Elijah's response. I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. See, they know what they're doing. They know they've not really committed to follow God because they're playing the game. They're trying to worship God, Yahweh, and Baal. So it's just like a kid. When you call them out on something they know they shouldn't be doing, they don't say anything. They just kind of, that's what the people do here. They refuse to speak. Elijah says, hey, we're going to do this. It says, just me, one prophet of God versus all of you who are worshiping Baal. So here's what we're going to do to decide, to determine who is the one true God. We're each going to get a bull, cut it up into pieces. You put it on your altar to Baal. He says, I'll put it on my, the altar to Yahweh. They're going to have to rebuild it, we see. And we're going to ask, you ask your God to move. He says, I'll ask my God to move. We'll see who is the one true God by who sends down fire to consume the offering. Now, something about Baal, he was known as the storm god. Think storm, think lightning. Lightning starts fires. So the prophets of Baal should have been confident. Like This is a fight. They should have said, yeah, we can handle this. If Baal is really real, then this is something Baal can handle. So they, sure enough, they get the bulls together. And Elijah says, you know what? There's so many of you. I'll let you guys go first. Verse 26, so they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked him. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away. Or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears, according to their custom, until blood gushed over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah, at this point, think about it. all day. They've been out there making noise, yelling, cutting themselves. Nothing happens. Elijah steps forward. He says, hey, get the bull. We're going to rebuild the Lord's altar. He puts 12 stones around it to signify the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Elijah goes a little bit further. He digs a trench around the altar 
that would hold up to about four gallons. It says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get buckets, and we're going to drench the offering, this bull, this sacrifice, so much so that it runs down into the trench and even fills up the trench. Now, now why would he do that? Elijah, it really thinks two things. One, it's extreme confidence in God. And two, he's, he wants it to be abundantly clear that there's no tricks at work. Now, only God could do what's about to happen. So they get the altar ready, pour all this water over it, fills the trench. Verse 36, at the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Boom. The Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones. But this fire is so hot, it consumes the rocks that are there and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yeah. <laughs> This is, this is incredible. And then Elijah says, you know what? Because the people, they're having a moment of repentance. They're, they're seeing this is the one true God. He says, hey, we're going to, this is kind of a foreign to New Testament context, but he says, hey, we're going to gather up these false prophets of Baal and we're going to slaughter them down by the river because they've been leading us astray from Israel or from, sorry, from, from Yahweh, from God. So sure enough, the people in a repentant spirit, they help gather up all these false prophets and they slaughter them. It's a picture of that repentance is happening. You can say revival is happening. And then it's interesting in verse, uh, verse 41, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of a rainstorm. Do you remember they had been in a drought that was causing a famine? Why were they in a drought? Because of their idolatry. They had, been not, they had not been worshiping the one true God. But as soon as there's repentance, Elijah says, hey, rain's coming. So sure enough, he has his uh, helper go and look several times out to the sea, the Mediterranean. Don't see a cloud. Finally, the seventh time, verse 44, 44, he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, which was 15 miles away. I don't know if you, if like what games you, there may be out now, but I remember growing up, my buddies had a game called, it was called NBA Jam, and when you got on fire, your little basketball player would literally be on fire, like no matter where you were on the court, you could make it from anywhere, right? You were defensively dribbling, like this is Elijah right now, right? Like, this dude, under the power of the Lord, is on fire. Like, talk about a mountaintop experience. It's not about Elijah, but it's about how God is using him and what Elijah is getting to see God do. This is incredible. You could even say, in some ways, unprecedented, amazing what God was doing. Mountaintop of mountaintops. But then chapter 19, 
Ahab told Jezebel, Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Which let's stop for a second. Think about this. How hard was Jezebel's heart to get the word? Hey, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he just sit down fire and consumed the altar, even the stones around it, licked up the water where Baal did nothing. So something's happening in Israel. All, the, all these false prophets of Baal have just been killed. And rather than hearing that and going, maybe I'm worshiping the wrong God, she says, I'm going to kill Elijah by this time tomorrow. This is a sick lady. But listen what Elijah, like there's this shift that we see here. He's been so bold, so passionate. He stood up against 850 prophet, false prophets. And then he hears this one lady, while she is crazy, she wants to kill him. Look what happens. Verse three, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. So he didn't think about it. He didn't ponder, he didn't ruminate. He just takes off. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. So he's headed south, far south, takes his servant, but then even goes further on his own. It says, he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. That's kind of a, a very specific detail in the text, a broom tree. So broom trees in that part of the country are or the world, are known for being only growing in the most isolated, excuse me, isolated, desolate places. I think the author is trying to clue us into, hey, this is, he literally is run to the middle of nowhere. He prayed, God, I've had enough. Or sorry, he says, he sat down under the broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord, Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up ate and drank. Then on the strength from the Lord, the food, or excuse me, strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. Hebrews, uh, uh, this, literally, there was a strong silence. There was nothing. 
When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question he asked before, right? And Elijah gives the same answer. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you're to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You're to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Whoa. I don't want to overly paint Elijah in a poor picture here, but talk about from mountaintop epic moment to spiritual belly flop. (laughs) Standing before all these prophets, confident in the Lord, and then running from one woman, while she was crazy, running from one woman who wanted to kill him and running a really long ways. (laughs) This was a spiritual belly flop. But I'm glad it's in scripture because it gives us some perspective to have when we do the same. Five things I want to point out. We'll move pretty quick. Number one, just to really want to encourage you today. Number one, you are made of dirt. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) You're made of dirt. You, like me, have limits. We are finite. While God is limitless, infinite, he's omnipotent, so he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. He's omniscient. He knows everything. That's God. That is certainly not us. And because you have limits as a human, you, you need sustenance. You know, I kind of wrestled over this point, but I think you just can't deny it in the text that God gave Elijah what he needed just to help him recover in this moment. It's interesting, if you look back at, uh, in chapter 18, verse 42, when Elijah, after this epic moment, and God's called fire down and, and licked up the, the burnt offering or, and the, the water around the trench, it says Elijah bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. A lot of commentators believe that's not him praying. It's lacking a few uh, descriptors there. They actually think it's him doing that out of sheer exhaustion. And then he runs when he hears about Jezebel. He runs, he gets under this tree. And you know what? God let him sleep. He makes his prayer. God, just kill me, basically, is what he says. And then God allowed him to sleep. Do you remember what happened when an angel came and angel of the Lord came and woke Elijah up and what was there in front of him? Hot bread and a jug of water. Like, wouldn't that just be awesome if you woke up in the morning, the Lord was like, here, here's some bacon for you. (laughs) Like, God knew he needed food and drink. And then what did God do? He let him go back to sleep, didn't he? Then he woke him up a second time and he said, hey, you need to get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. Now, sometimes the best thing for your spiritual walk with the Lord is a good nap, 
good meal or just getting hydrated. <laughs> Too often, I think we wonder, what is God doing? What? I feel this way. I feel distant from God. And maybe you're just exhausted. Like maybe you just need to rest a little bit and slow down. Corey Tim Boom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Isn't that true? That so often what is, is maybe making us feel distant from God or lack that desire to find our greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus is we just need to slow down and breathe for a minute. I don't think this was in any way Elijah sinning, but I think there'd been so much going on that he, did, he just needed to sit and rest for a minute. John Mark Comer in his book, The uh, Relentless, uh, in one of his books, so I can't think of the name right now, I just drew a blank there. Um, in John Mark Comer's book, he says that hurry is violence on the soul. The book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. There we go. But he says, hurry is violence on the soul. Isn't that true? When you just go, 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 that wears you down. Yes, mentally, physically, emotionally, but even spiritually. Sometimes you just need to slow down for a minute and, and let God sustain you and restore you. You know, it's cool. As far away as Elijah tried to run, as far south as he tried to run, he even went to Mount Sinai. Think, like it's, remember, that's where Moses went and had the Ten Commandments given to him. Like This dude is running a long ways away. He never outran God's voice. Here's the second thing I want you to see. God's whisper can reach you where you are. God's whisper, whisper can reach you where you are. Now, I, there's some, uh, I think commentators kind of struggle with exactly what was going on in this text. And I think there are, there are some things that are up for uh, discussion. But I think genuinely that Elijah, when he ran, was not where he was supposed to go. So he goes to Mount Sinai and has this, this cool moment with the Lord as far away as he's ran. But did you notice the Lord asked him twice, hey, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that's so gentle, that's so soft. It's not this, what are you doing here, you fool? But he asked, hey, what are you doing here? And Elijah tells him, and then he, he whispers to him, and he asks him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And eventually God tells him, hey, I want you to go back the way you came from and return to the wilderness of Damascus. So that tells me Elijah was not where he was supposed to go. Like he, he was running further and further, and he does. He, he, he seeks out this moment with the Lord by going to Mount Sinai, but he wasn't here where he was supposed to be, and yet still God spoke to him. Friend, you are never too far for the voice of God. And isn't it amazing when he says, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence, Hey, first, there's a mighty wind that tears rocks off the mountain. That's a pretty strong wind. There's an earthquake. Then there's a fire, and the Lord was in none of those. It's in this small, literally strong silence that God spoke to Elijah. Think about that contrast of Mount Carmel, epic moment. Man, you can't deny God is moving. But then it's in the silence that God speaks to Elijah. Sometimes God speaks to us in in the amazing and the significant, and sometimes he speaks to us just in the simple silence. How often when you belly flop spiritually and you feel disoriented and confused, you just need to be still before God, get quiet, and listen to him. 
and like just to be explicit, like to pick up the Bible and hear his voice. I think too often we, we find ourselves spiritually belly flopping and feeling confused and disoriented and embarrassed and, ah, and, and the Lord's like, shh, just, just get quiet for a minute. Let me speak to you. It may not always be this crazy big voice. Sometimes it's just really simple and small, but just what you needed to hear. You know, it's cool when you get quiet before the Lord and you, you get in scripture when you do. The Lord reminds you of something that is really obvious to him, but too often oblivious to us is this. This third thing I want you to see, third perspective. You don't see what God sees. You don't see what God sees. Think about this. When the Lord talks to Elijah and asks him, hey, what are you doing here? Elijah both times says, look, everyone's abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They're looking to take my life. Now, now the problem is, while there's some truth to that, like, Actually, there was kind of a, a little mini revival that just happened one chapter before, right? Like, like literally just a couple of days before. And Elijah's not seeing that in this moment. Think about it. Obadiah had saved a hundred of the Lord's prophets. Ob uh, Elijah had just seen all these people show, demonstrate repentance. And then even later in chapter, excuse me, in verse 18 of chapter 19, God says, hey, there's still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal, who have not kissed him, have not kissed this idol. There's still thousands of people that are worshiping me, but Elijah couldn't see it at the time. God sees what you can't see. Think about Jezebel. He hears that Jezebel is coming for him and, and Elijah's like, he gone, right? Takes takes off running. And he was right to see that, yes, Jezebel was all kinds of crazy, but he was forgetting to see that God is all kinds of powerful. Like Jezebel does not scare God, but he just couldn't see it at the time. I think it was uh, John Piper that said, God, at any, at any point in your life, maybe doing 10,000, sorry, 10,000 things, but you only see three of them. God sees what you can't see. Take hope in that. I think about, we just uh, took our kiddos to, to San Antonio for vacation last week. That's why I wasn't here last Sunday. And I don't say this out of uh, bitterness or anything, but towards the end of the trip, I was thinking about, it was kind of funny to me, that our kids were oblivious, are oblivious, <laughs> to how much planning and time and, and really money we put in to make that vacation happen for them. Right? Like parents, you know what I'm talking about? Like it was totally clueless to what we had done to, to take care of them. And I feel like as I was thinking about that and honestly kind of laughing about it, I feel like the Lord was like, hey, buddy, that's you all the time. <laughs> that all the time we're just clueless to the way God is providing for us, helping us grow in him, navigating our lives, and we're just oblivious to it. You don't see what God sees. You know, I've shared this before uh, from Charles Spurgeon, he said, when you can't trace the hand of God, so when you can't see what he's doing, you can trust the heart of God. What if today, as, as we leave and just as a point of application, what if you chose to make that a prayer when you feel like you spiritually belly flop and feel disoriented and confused? God, what are you doing? I felt so close. Now I feel so far. What if you chose to make that a prayer? God, I can't trace your hand right now, but I'm gonna trust your heart. I'm gonna trust that you're good. And you know, 
it should be a reminder when you make that prayer of the fourth thing we need to see that I think is maybe the most obvious from this text. And that is, there's only one perfect person. There's only one perfect person. As amazing as Elijah was, as much of a godly man as he was, there's only one perfect person. And his name is not your name. His name is not my name. His name is Jesus. One perfect person who never failed. And Elijah helps point the way towards Jesus that we all needed that perfect person because all of us run and sin and spiritually belly flop all the time. It's not just that we spiritually belly flop. No, we were dead at the bottom of the ocean in our sin. And yet Jesus lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve to come and save us and rescue us by rising three days later from the grave. One perfect person, his name is Jesus. Every story you read in scripture, if it's not about Jesus, it reminds you, hey, you know what? We needed a savior and that's why he came. How foolish are we to, to sit and waller in our sin and our mistakes and our spiritual belly flop when the reality is we, we know there's only one perfect person and it's Jesus. Man, I, fix your eyes on him. Anyway, he's going to lead you to do, he's going to lead you to do this fourth, this, this fifth thing, sorry, it's this, to remember this, you can get back up. When you spiritually belly flop and you feel confused, embarrassed, disoriented, you can get back up. You don't have to stay down. I love what happens in this text that even though Elijah's not getting it and he keeps telling God the same answer, God tells him, hey, go back to Damascus, the wilderness of Damascus. I have some things for you to do because God wasn't done with him. Too often we struggle, we embarrass ourselves, we feel distant from God and we sit, we think, oh, it's gonna take a while. I gotta get myself right again. And God's saying, hey, go, I have things for you to do. I think a good question you could, we could ask ourselves when we feel like we've spiritually belly flopped is, is this, what I know God has commanded me to do and what has God called me to do? I'm gonna do those things. Like I know he's called me to, to love him, to love my family, to love others. I'm gonna do that and quit feeling sorry for myself. You can get back up. Ultimately, why? Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Jesus paid the price for your sins, rose again, which gives us purpose, hope, and forgiveness. He didn't stay down. You ain't got to stay down. You can get back up because of Jesus. Proverbs 24, 16 says, the righteous man falls seven times, but then he does what? He gets back up. And don't be weird, legalistic about that verse. Like, oh my gosh, I, I fell eight times. God is done with me. No, the point is that you're even righteous people, people who are walking with the Lord, they're going to fall, they're going to struggle, they're going to spiritually belly flop, but they get back up with their eyes on Jesus. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 